Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Join us for an in-depth look at Iowa agriculture. Here's your host, Riley Smith. Hello and welcome into this week's edition of Weekend Ag Matters. I'm Riley Smith. Russ Parker, Dustin Huffman, and Mark Magnuson will join us later on in the show. As for right now, let's start with a quick look at the news headlines. Iowa Secretary of Agriculture Mike Nag encourages eligible Iowa farm owners to apply for Century or Heritage Farm recognition as part of the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship Century and Heritage Farm Program. The program was created by the department and the Iowa Farm Bureau Federation to honor families who have owned their farms for 100 years and 150 years, respectively. To be included for recognition in 2024, completed applications must be postmarked or received by the department by June 1st of this year. The ceremonies honoring the 2024 Century and Heritage Farm families will be held on August 15, 2024, in the Historic Livestock Pavilion at the Iowa State Fair. To apply, download and complete the application found on the department's website and return it via mail following the instructions. In other news, beginning farmers know the substantial initial investment it takes to farm, and those who currently farm are facing a projected 25% cut in their net farm income compared to last year. These situations have prompted interest in niche opportunities that require less land or can complement an existing family farm. To meet this rising interest, the Iowa Farm Bureau Federation's Acres of Opportunity Conference provides a space to learn from and network with farmers who have taken a diversified path. This conference is slated for March 16th at the Bridgeview Center in Ottumwa and will cover niche areas such as specialty meats, small grains, flower farming, regenerative grazing, and more. Industry experts will also be present to talk about beginning farmer loans, branding opportunities, and e-commerce. Keynoting the event is Sarah Frey, CEO and founder of Frey Farms, the nation's leading grower, shipper, and marketer of fresh fruits and vegetables. Described by New York Times as America's Pumpkin Queen, Frey's empire began as a simple produce route that expanded into contracts with Walmart following her acquisition of her family's farm. She now owns farmland in seven states and has her own watermelon juice business, Sama which uses up ugly watermelons that would otherwise be thrown out at the consumer level. Frey will share the importance of learning from each other's challenges and drawing on the inspiration around us. Registration is free for Farm Bureau members and $60 per person for non-members. Register online by March 3rd and view a full agenda at iowafarmbureau.com forward slash acres. And that's all the time we have for news headlines this week. Check out the rest of our daily news stories on iowaagnet.com. And while you're there, go ahead and sign up for our newsletter to get our daily content conveniently delivered to you every day. We'll go ahead and kick it over to Russ Parker with his faith-based food for thought here on Weekend Ag Matters. It's been my routine to prune my apple trees the last week of January every year. I remember as a teenager, my brother and I were tasked with pruning the trees in the apple orchard at the neighbor's house where we worked. Always the last week of January, we had about a dozen mature trees to prune. Now, we were not arborists, just a couple of kids with no special training and really no creative shaping skills. Our boss had very simple instructions. Make sure when you're done that a bird can fly through the middle of the tree and clean up all the branches off the ground. That was pretty much it. And despite us, the trees bore fruit year after year. Many years ago, I took a trip to Switzerland to observe some of the agricultural practices in that country. Because space is such a precious commodity in that country, they have been forced to be creative to produce the most crop from a small space. 
And while visiting a small dairy farm, we noticed what appeared to be a trellis on the side of the farmer's barn. On the trellis, carefully tended, were several pear trees. Each branch had been pruned and trained to grow along the wires of the trellis, all parallel to the wall of the barn. Not a single branch grew forward or backward. The setup was indeed a work of art, a far cry from the pruning techniques my brother and I use at our boss's apple orchard. I think in life we are called to do some pruning too, from the perspective of removing the old to make way for the new. We rake the leaves off the lawn to allow new growth. We weed the garden to allow the plants we want to be productive. And we get rid of the old stuff that is worn, rusty, broken, or has served its purpose. And we are called to do the same in our spiritual lives. And our Lord is the vine keeper. And sometimes the pruning is easy, and other times we're challenged to sever a large branch that has nourished us, maybe in both good and bad ways. Regardless, in the end, our designed purpose is to produce from that seed planted in us good fruit that glorifies the Lord. The second chapter of John offers us some insight. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off the branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Food for thought, I hope. This is Russ Parker. Have a blessed day. Thanks, Russ. And that's it for segment one on this week's episode. Coming up after this short break, Dustin talks with Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. This is Weekend Ag Matters. You might think Iowa just grows corn, but the truth is corn grows Iowa. Hi, I'm Stu Swanson, a farmer from Galt, Iowa, and the first vice president of the Iowa Corn Growers Association. Whether you're planting, harvesting, or anywhere in between, as a member of the Iowa Corn Growers Association, you're also actively advocating for our industry. As an ICGA member, you have a voice lobbying on ag issues at the state and federal levels on priorities that impact your farm. Join us today at iowacorn.org join. Are you ready to diversify your farm income? Sweetwater Technologies, powered by GRIP, is offering the next generation of agricultural entrepreneurs turnkey owner-operated drone business partnerships. Together, we can grow and empower agricultural communities through technological solutions. It is our vision to build economic growth for future generations. Apply today to become a business partner and join our journey on the road to 1 million acres at sweetwatertechnologies.com. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's your host, Dustin Hoffman. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. I'm Dustin Hoffman. Well, we've talked at length about uh, food and the substitutes of some of our food items, especially when we talk about dairy products and milk, but eggs also seeing a rise in the egg alternatives that sometimes are still labeled as eggs when they aren't. Congress is getting involved, and Iowa Senator Joni Ernst talks with us about the egg bill that's going through right now and also talks a little bit about biofuels. We're going to talk, first of all, about eggs. Now, what we're going to be talking about has to do with what is an egg, kind of, sort of, you know, and what's being labeled as an egg. I know it's something we've talked about in the past with milk, and we thought that that could just be a slippery slope we could be going down with when we have 
replacement or alternatives to either eggs or milk or whatever we have us. And eggs are the focus. So talk us a little about some legislation you've got going on right now to help out our Iowa egg producers. Yeah, well, thanks, Dustin. You really set the stage because uh, this is an issue when you're walking through the grocery store and you're looking at all of these different products that might come in cartons and they are labeled as eggs or egg substitutes. And if you're a busy mom, you're trying to juggle a, a toddler and a baby as you're doing your grocery shopping, you may not notice that what you're grabbing that says egg on the label is not actually eggs. It might be a product that's derived from mung beans or something like that. So uh, what John Fetterman, who is a Democratic senator from Pennsylvania, and I are doing, we are going back and saying, hey, if you are going to have egg on the label, it needs to be an egg product. So we are pushing for the for new labeling requirements as it concerns eggs. Um, if you are an egg substitute, sorry, can't use egg. Um, but anyway, it's a it's a great effort, and you're right in that we've seen this with milk alternatives as well. And I have yet to see an almond that actually produces milk. And again, this has never been about saying that you can't have any of these products. Obviously, things like almond milk or the the mung beans and the egg substitutes obviously are agriculture from other parts of the country, but obviously agriculture in itself. And so you're not trying to disperse, you know, or, or sorry, disparage what they're trying to do. It's the fact that we don't want to have confusion on the label so people know what they're getting when they're buying and make sure they're getting what they want, whether that's an egg or a substitute. Exactly. And I would just describe this as truth in advertising. Um, so making sure that when people are grabbing that carton off of the shelf at the grocery store, that they know whether they are eating another plant derived substitute or if it actually is an egg that comes from poultry. So again, it's just truth in advertising. We want people to know and understand what they are buying and what they are consuming. Now, I know we've had this challenge before though with dairy and actually getting this accomplished. I mean, what, are, what do we feel like our, our chances are with eggs? Is that gonna, do we think we have a, a better footing or is this gonna be a continuation of the conversation we've been having? It is a continuation, I am sure. I would love to see this get over the finish line. And that's why uh, Senator Fetterman and I came together on this act, why we are proposing it. Um, but yes, you will see pushback coming from various groups. Of course, you know, when you're talking about mung beans, uh, that may not sound very appetizing. Um, so of course they want to use egg in their label. Um, but it is not an egg. And that's what people need to understand. Um, so again, we are going to push this issue. If it brings up greater conversation, I think that is a step in the right direction. But ultimately, we would love to see the legislation enacted. All right. And so switching gears now, I know we just had the Iowa Renewable Fuel Summit here in Des Moines. And we, we talked a lot about sustainable aviation fuel. It has been the big topic uh, outside of E15 year-round in the ethanol and biofuels industry. Uh, you know, we're looking at uh, going ahead and, and the GREET model coming out and, and, and looking at what the future is going to be and, and how agriculture is going to play a part in the future of sustainable aviation fuel. As they mentioned at the summit, it's a wide open place, a playing field right now. 
and we want to make sure that uh, biofuels have that chance to to have that that seat at the table and, and have a fair shot at the plate. Yeah, absolutely. And I have joined with Senator Moran, Jerry Moran of Kansas on his Farm to Fly Act. There are a number of us, and it is a bipartisan act as well. Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota has joined as well. But there are a number of us that have been working in the biofuel space for a very long time. And we see sustainable aviation fuel as the next step forward for our farmers and for sustainable energy. So we are working very hard on this act. It would uh, wrap in USDA with this as well and really push some of these uh, public-private partnerships, but allowing us to, to take a look at sustainable aviation fuel through some already existing programs at USDA. But again, this is great for our farmers right there in good old Iowa and just uh, yesterday, or the day before I spoke with leadership from uh, Iowa Corn, and they are really excited about the opportunity to literally expand their horizons into aviation fuel. And how can we, I mean, is, is this going to help guarantee that ag has that CSO? Because obviously you've got other ways of making uh, a sustainable fuel source uh, other than just agriculture. And we know some of those uh, companies and industries have deep pockets as well. Uh, we want to make sure that we get that. Is this going to be uh, a definitely uh, a fair shake then for agriculture, or is this going to be, uh, or, or to what end are we going to see this come out if this works and goes through? Well, I'm hoping that this is a fair shape shake for agriculture, but Dustin, you and I know that sometimes things are fairer for one industry than another. <laughs> But uh, yes, uh, we are really excited about the opportunity to, to seize on to this moment. This is a great platform for our renewable energy folks, uh, for our farmers as well. And you have to have fighters in Congress too. You can't just roll over and let the administration decide who's going to be the winner or the loser. We have to provide a very strong voice for our biofuels. I have been a champion, uh, an adamant champion for biofuels since day one uh, when I came into the United States Senate. This is just another great opportunity for our Iowa farmers. One thing I found interesting when I was at the summit was the fact that, you know, unlike with the car industry where we, we sometimes see pushback from the manufacturers and big oil, the airline industry really seems willing to embrace a chance to you know, reduce their footprint. And, we, and we've seen before where if planes are, are down, and I know one thing is one, one thing that's always used is uh, during the pandemic or even the days after September 11th, when there was no planes in the sky, uh, the sky quality, the air quality was so much better. So obviously there is a lot to be said for how much pollution can come out of these planes. And the airline industry seems really ready to grasp on, on reducing that footprint. They are. They are excited about the opportunity. And we know that air transportation is one of those large contributors to uh, the overall carbon footprint uh, that we have around the globe. And if we have a way to reduce that and it's sustainable and key to that as well, Dustin, is affordable um, and less reliant upon foreign entities, uh, then yes, our airlines are going to grab a hold of this. So it is a, a wonderful way to separate ourselves as Iowa farmers, as farmers across the nation, and engage in sustainable aviation fuel, which again is homegrown energy 
that all Americans should be able to embrace. Whether you are on the far left and you're, you consider yourself a greenie, an environmentalist, you know, whatever, or maybe you're on the right, you're a conservative farmer in Iowa, there are benefits for everyone if we are moving forward in sustainable aviation fuel. That again was Iowa Senator Jody Ernst. And that's going to put the wraps here on segment two of Weekend Ag Matters. Mark Magnuson will be in to wrap up the show right after this. Locally led, locally relevant, locally driven. Mark your calendars this February to join the Iowa Soybean Association at a 2024 Innovation to Profit meeting in your area. With meetings in Storm Lake, Waterloo, Fairfield, and Lewis, this is an opportunity to engage with fellow farmers and learn about research opportunities to boost your profitability, productivity, and sustainability. A new year brings new opportunities. Take advantage of them today by registering at iasoybeans.com. This message is brought to you by the Iowa Soybean Association and funded by the Soybean Checkoff and the United Soybean Board. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here is Mark Magnuson. I'm joined today by Dan Halstrom. He is the president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. And Dan, it seems like every day I read a new story about USMEF on some type of a trip, and you've just gotten back from one recently. Where were you, and how did the trip go? Yeah, we uh, we just got back actually from Korea. We uh, had a um, uh, industry uh, or uh, our organizational marketing meeting we have every year somewhere in the world and we were in Seoul last week and uh, uh, it was an opportunity to sit down see the market but we also sat down with representatives from all facets of the world and our organization and really talked about best ways to to really maximize the value of these exports uh, globally and uh, it's always good to get the group together to do that. What were your, some of your takeaways from that trip and what you learned on that visit to Korea? Well, I think um, since we were in Asia, uh, it was interesting to see because Asia, honestly, in 2023, we had some really good results, but it was led by Latin America. Uh, Asia was was a little bit hobbled on the food service side in particular, and it was interesting to see everyone's perspective on the rebound of food service and tourism, and it is coming back in general, but still not where it was pre-COVID. So we're looking forward to that because that's, that's some potential uh, additional demand that we could see in 2024. And I know in China specifically, it's taken them a long time to get out of that COVID protocol period and kind of get back to a normalcy. Is that the same throughout the rest of Asia? Are there other countries that are still taking a long time to come back from? I would say um, it it is the case uh, with Japan as well. Japan and China are both lagging. Korea appears to be ahead of the curve. And the one that was really least impacted was Taiwan. Taiwan is totally back to normal and hitting on all cylinders. So it's kind of a mixed bag. But but two of our larger markets being Japan and, and China, uh, you know, to have some a rebound of some sort this year will, will help demand immensely. Dan, we're fresh into 2024. Let's talk, though, about last year, which was a great year for pork exports. And it was also a year, you know, that we go to a show like this. We're at Pork Congress here in Iowa today. And we would say, you know, it's a tough time for producers right now. But when we look at the positives, one of the first things that always came up was exports. And was that kind of the theme of 2023? Yeah, I think um, 2023 was... Uh, 
it, it was it was a good year uh and it'll be a record year on value more than likely when we get december stats at about 8.2 billion in export sales but the exciting part isn't so much that stat it's the fact that it wasn't just one country it was broad-based and especially throughout latin america there was broad-based growth everywhere uh, mexico led the way it, it actually set a new record in october <laughs> with two months to go but uh, you saw central america as a whole is setting records um colombia in south america uh and even uh you know places like the philippines were starting to see some real growth so uh so yeah i think the fact that it was such broad-based growth is really encouraging do those countries still have some room to grow even more and to have the ability to import even more of the great pork that we create here in this country? Without a doubt. And I'll, I'll give you the best example why. Most of these countries, their per capita consumption is relatively small compared to the U.S. So as they become, <clears throat> as spending power increases, which the middle class is growing in most of these countries, as the understanding of how to utilize, how to, uh, to cook, how to merchandise uh, U.S. pork, uh, and even domestic pork, for that matter, in these countries, uh, that will grow per capita consumption. So per capita consumption growing not only helps the potential for imports, but it'll help their domestic industry as well. So it really is a win-win for all involved. Are there any countries that are just kind of taking some baby steps but could eventually become an export market that's, I guess, in line with what we want to see that growth overseas, obviously, but be a country that still has a room for a lot of growth? Yeah, I think um, I think there's several examples. I mean, you know, you've got places like the Philippines. You've got places like, uh, um, you know, a place like Peru in South America and, and Malaysia. You know, Malaysia wasn't even on the map a couple of years ago, and uh, and there aren't that many plants approved yet for Malaysia, which is a, a little bit of a restriction, but that'll come. And uh, the demand is there in a lot of these places. So yeah, that we're very focused on some of these countries. Uh, there's some really uh, uh, potential momentum there. Now, on the flip side of that, when you go to a market like Korea, it's a very mature market. So what are the main goals when you're going to a place that U.S. pork is so well established? Yeah, well, Korea is a good example. Um, one of the things we see driving growth in some of these more modern markets or more mature markets is the demand for convenience. And Korea is a leader. <clears throat> when I say convenience, I'm talking about um, something that adds value and adds uh, and, cr and and takes less time out of the consumer's time uh, in the whole chain of his day. So home meal replacement kits, for example, restaurant meal replacement, um, you know, this sort of thing uh, combined with the e-commerce trends, uh, vast difference between places like Korea and the U.S. The, the percentage of transactions for grocery at e-commerce is, well, it's it's extremely high in, in Korea to the tune of 40% of their transactions. So the convenience of delivery along with these home meal replacements, you know, these, these products are more expensive, but because they're so convenient, we're seeing demand go through the roof. And this is a chance for us, the U.S. producing side, the pork side, to add value. Down to the producer level, I'm not trying to put any more work on their plate. They're very busy creating, or I should say, producing the pork that comes from this country. But is there anything that they should be mindful of or taking into account when it comes to the export side? Is it just being knowledgeable about what's happening right now in the export markets and some of those places that you're trying to grow exports? Well, I think it's twofold. I think producers should be proud of the fact that we're running at a record of 63, over $63 a head payback due to exports. That has everything to do with the producers, their attention to quality, attention to nutrition, attention to animal welfare, all these things, sustainability. 
But the other thing that they really need to be cognizant of is their attention to animal safety and animal health. Uh, one of the big bogeys out there is if we had any kind of foreign animal disease that was trade restricting, like foot and mouth disease, African swine fever, these sorts of things, uh, that would be devastating, at least on the short term, for the industry with loss of trade access. So, in fact, I know there's panels going on today regarding traceability, and that ties into this whole discussion about being being prepared in a case, uh, and hopefully it never happens, but in the case of a foreign animal disease. So I think to be aware and in the loop on that topic, is important as well. Every time that a group comes back from an overseas trip, I hear these stories about how the consumers there, the end users, are so appreciative of learning directly from producers how United States pork is produced. Do you, and you get to see that every single time you go on a trip, Dan. Could you tell our audience what's that, what that's like when that consumer gets to interact with the producer? Yeah, the USMEF, our organization, we, we, we love what we do. We, we like to go out and tell the story. But you're exactly right. There's no replacement for having a producer go and tell the story. And the the coming from the grassroots level, uh, can the trade, whether it's a retailer or a food service guy or a distributor in any country, Korea, Hong Kong, Japan, wherever, it's very effective. And uh, we do it all the time to the extent that we can. Uh, every September, we take what we call a Heartland team over. We had Last September, we had 20 producers that went. They were pork producers, beef producers, uh, corn and soybean producers. And having them sit down with uh, a company like Emart, one of the largest retailers in Korea, uh, it's just it's hard to describe how effective it is. And, uh, and it's good for the producers to see that side, too. Dan, is there anything else you'd like to let our listeners in Iowa know about when it comes to USMEF and the hard work that you're doing to, uh, I guess, help with pork exports? Well, I would just say, you know, I'm from Iowa, so the great state of Iowa, the leader in pork production and corn production and and uh, the quality products that you produce here. It's something to be proud of and, you know, really we're, uh, we're, touting, uh, we're touting this each and every day on their behalf. So thank you for what all your uh, listeners do. President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, Dan Halstrom, our guest here today at Pork Congress 2024. Dan, thanks so much for the time, and have a great rest of the show. Thank you so much. Thank you to Dan Halstrom of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. And with that, we've reached the end of today's show. You can find this episode and all of our previous episodes of Weekend Ag Matters on the podcast page of our website at iowaagnet.com. For Russ Parker, Dustin Huffman, and Riley Smith, I'm Mark Magnuson. Thanks for listening and join us again next week for Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, where Iowa Ag Matters.